welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm the Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project and also the host of our Chicago Justice Podcast. You can find out more about the work we do every day at chicagojustice.org. And if you want to get involved, at cjpnation.org. So today we're going to cover a couple of things. First of all, we're going to talk about Superintendent Brown's no confidence vote, a couple articles out of the Sun-Times regarding that. And then we are going to uh, feature an interview with Albert Fox Kahn, founder of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, I think out of NYU Law School. And talk to Albert about, um, you know, this NYPD's capability surveillance-wise, including a microwave van or something like that that sees through walls it's, it's and buildings. It's really amazing. So we'll feature that in segment two. But first, we talk about Superintendent Brown, David Brown of the Chicago Police Department, and the no-confidence vote. And I don't think there was actually one taken, but this is a story in the Sun-Times by Tom Shuba, titled, CPD leaders say they've lost faith in Superintendent Brown. I can't think of one member of the command staff that is willing to back him. It's an all right article. He doesn't push back on anything. So it is very much a stenographer's the power type of uh, situation here. So let's get to the article and we'll discuss a little bit of its contents. Here's a quote. We all agree Brown was driving. We all agree that Brown was driving CPD into the ground. Zero confidence in his ability to lead the department, said the source, who predicted there could be more than 1,000 citywide homicides this year if Brown stays in power. Okay. The crux of that quote is that for that to be true, for that it's Brown's leadership that is leading to the higher homicide rates in Chicago or other cities um, in Chicago. But what about all the homicides in all the urban centers? The smaller they get, the more per capita, the higher per capita rates they have of violence, gun violence, carjackings, all of it. It's kind of, once again, a, um, a, a quote from a source who doesn't have any clue what the hell is going on around the country. And this idea that is in a lot of police officers' heads, which is a mistake that is they're the main driver of crime reductions, right? Little and no evidence backing that up, but that is their belief. And you can't dissuade them of that no matter what you do. Because when you do, when you let that thought enter your mind, then questions like, well, how many police do we really need? And can we reinvest that money into other things comes in. Shuba did not push back. He didn't push back on anything, so he certainly didn't push back on that. Brown, here's a quote from Brown. We are striving for a safer Chicago and a more transparent Chicago police department, a transformed department with a changed culture. No. No. Brown wants you to think he's doing that. Now, remember, everyone, this is about context. When Lori Lightfoot in December of 19, I believe, fired Eddie Johnson, the former superintendent, for being drunk on in uniform, had a D, what should have had a DUI, but it was covered up, all of that lying to her. It was an old school run department. She brings in Eddie, um, Chief Beck, 
from a retired chief back from Los Angeles, who's supposedly a forward thinker to some degree. And she brings him in as an, uh, as a intermediary between Eddie Johnson and whoever the new superintendent is going to be. He starts transforming the department and bringing in all these reforms for better or worse. Lightfoot starts going towards Brown instead of one of Chief Beck's guys that is working with the crime lab as a consultant to the Chicago Police Department at the time. That plan was all put into place. For some reason, that didn't happen. When Beck realized that wasn't happening, he announced like on Monday he was leaving Friday, left Friday, and took off. Lightfoot brings in David Brown some short time later to run the department in April of 20. Pandemics hit. Brown starts undoing everything Beck did. One of the things Beck was doing was getting rid of specialized units, getting rid of these citywide units. That was one of his things and putting more resources in districts. Brown undid all that and went back to old school policing, which is these large special units. For the most part, he did a little community policing, whether or not that is even has a chance of being effective with Brown running it, not so much. Basically, what Brown has been doing his entire time is pushing an old way of policing and putting out fires because their job is always putting out fires. I don't think no matter who you had running this department for the most part the last two years with the pandemic, it would have made any difference in crime or violence in Chicago. That is threatening the police because then it, it, it reduces the amount you have to rely on them for those things. Here's another quote. The department, this is from the source, the department has been in a constant state of reorganization since Brown arrived, which is evidence that he has no strategy and doesn't know what he's doing. That I actually kind of agree on. And part of this is Lightfoot's fault, right? She fires Johnson, who he should have never been superintendent. You can go read on our website why. She brings in back, he starts transforming the department. David Brown then has been in a Steady stream, brought in a steady stream of constant change since then. And ladies and gentlemen, when Lightfoot or others try to tell you, hey, we're reforming the department through, you know, in concert with the consent decree, we're bringing in this progressive culture. David Brown is not progressive. David Brown is untruthful, that we've confirmed that. David Brown is an old, likes old ways of policing. David Brown likes promoting himself over everything. He's been manipulating, he has a history of manipulating stats in Dallas. He has a history of pissing off all the officers in Dallas. It isn't because he's this progressive reformer like Lightfoot is trying to push, like her and, like her and Brown are these progressives. Neither one is. Um, and it's not about anything other than pushing their ver vision of things that isn't progressive. The source raised, back to the article, the source raised alarms that increasing the number of positive community inter interactions could develop into a new version of stop and frisk. Okay, the source is lying. And they get a quote from um, um, Ed Yanka, I believe is how you pronounce his name, at the ACLU, and he's like, oh yeah, and he kind of agrees with it, and he doesn't like numbers policing. This is on the fact that the mayor and Superintendent Brown are pushing up the number of, of what they call positive interactions between police and citizens to 1.5 million for the year. They have a quota on that supposedly. And they're pushing command staff to have, uh, to increase arrests. And if you don't do that, 
your job, you definitely your rank is in jeopardy and your job is in jeopardy. So what is the hack source of this department? Go to, they go to a keyword that they know left and progressive people don't like. This could turn into stop and frisk. How would pushing officers that have positive interactions with community members turn into some of the worst of policing in the stop and frisk? Don't, don't, why isn't Shuba push back on this in the Sun-Times? Of course not. His dutiful job was just to take quotes and write it down and, re and regurgitate it. Why do we have you, dude? A computer could have done that. I mean, they're just outright lying. Back to the article. Meanwhile, sources said Brown has repeatedly compared this year's police activity to 2019 when there were significantly more arrests than the past two years. Of course, there were, you idiot. Idiot being David Brown. Idiot being, to some degree, the mayor. Pandemic people. People have been locked down dramatically. There are people out on the streets significantly down. So the average BS arrests that officers have made for buying drugs and you know small burglaries and things like that, those have all gone away. Simple assaults. You know, when you reduce the number of interactions in your city by tens of millions, if not billions, throughout the last two years because of the pandemic, crime is going to drop. Small crime, petty crime is going to drop, and all those arrests are going to drop with it. I mean, it's not a complicated thing, but when you're stuck on numbers, which is what Brown and Lightfoot are, that's what you get. Last piece of this article, if numbers matter, then there's a quota in place, the source set of the department's recent efforts. Listen, this cop doesn't care about quotas and the negative impact they have. He doesn't care at all. I'm mostly likely it's a man. They don't care. They don't like Brown. They don't like Lightfoot. This cop who said this could be a white wing extremist uh, in line with the police union. You have no idea. They don't care about quotas. They don't care. And they wouldn't be pushing back on the 1.5 million positive interactions. Why is that bad? They don't want any oversight. They don't want anyone in authority telling them what to do. They know best. Does that sound familiar or what? Listen, the general reality here is, ladies and gentlemen, the CPD is broken. David Brown's a disaster, but the leadership certainly don't want to take orders from anyone but someone who's within the CPD. And then even then, they don't really like it. So we're going to turn real quickly to the second article in this, uh, in this segment. It's from Fran Spielman, titled Lifewood Strongly Backs Top Cop David Brown Despite Police Supervisor's Lack of Confidence in His Leadership. I don't know. I mean, I understand Lightfoot is extremely, extremely hard-headed. So she's backing him because he's just being transformative. He isn't being transformative, ladies and gentlemen. Layer slow walking as much as possible. There's a federal consent decree that came out of the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division investigation. They're slow walking it. He isn't the progressive reformer of anything. David Brown's a hack. We've proved it. His time in Dallas, he was a hack. He's going to be a hack in Chicago. Who didn't see this coming? David Brown is a confirmed liar. Well, what do I mean? That's a strong allegation. Go to our website, chicagojustice.org, and go, uh, you can search for David Brown's suspension uncovered. We did a report this last summer about how David Brown was suspended during an internal misconduct because of an internal misconduct investigation. 
due to an off-duty incident by which he was in a police car chasing a suspect. So I guess he was kind of on duty at that point. And he lied multiple times during that investigation. So he's not a reformer. He's a confirmed liar. He was involved in data manipulation in Dallas, overseeing the lieutenant that did it, that in conjunction with the uh, superintendent of police. He's a hack. He's always been a hack. Um, so there's no reason to uh, have any faith in anything he says. This is a quote from Lightfoot. Super Brown, Superintendent Brown is trying to change the culture of, of a police department where the status quo served a lot of people, but frankly didn't serve the residents of the city in keeping them safe. Well, one, he's not trying to do that. There is a culture within the CPD of working for the CPD members and not for the communities. That's true. Does it mean all CPD members? No, by no means, but a lot of them. There's no doubt that he is not this progressive reformer. He just isn't. It's a shell game. Lightfoot wants the left of Chicago, especially because she's what, like a year away from reelection now? She wants them to think that. So she has to frame herself as a progressive reformer who has a progressive reformer um, superintendent. Brown and, and Lightfoot have pushed back like meaningful change. They've slow walked everything humanly possible. Here's one more piece of the article. Lightfoot said what she hears in the complaints is people who are cowards and want to go back to the old ways that served them but didn't serve the people. Great quote, Mayor. Great quote. She isn't totally wrong. There is some truth in there. The CPD and its leadership has no, no desire for accountability on any level at all. The department's administration, the department, the deputy public safety inspector general's reports, our report recently on police accountability, um, Catherine Large did it for us. You can find it on our homepage. All prove this department is massively broken. Um, I can only imagine um, how bad the people, many of the people are in leadership because for the most part, the people that rise up to those positions are hacks and they were permitted or, or they benefited from some clout that got them to where they are. Maybe they're just not in with David Brown. Maybe he is, I mean, he is a hack. So maybe there are some good people there that realize he's a hack, but would I trust leadership to anyone in the department? Absolutely not. Brown is definitely a disaster. The department is broke. I don't know where you go. Um, I don't know where you go from here. And I honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I think one other thing we all have to think about is what comes after David Brown? What comes after him? What does the future hold? I'm not sure for the last 20 years if you could get anyone in this department that was worth a damn to run the department, right? Eddie Johnson, horrible. Gary McCarthy before him, horrible. Jody Weiss, not very good. And we can go on and on and on. Phil Klein was before him. It's just most of those people outside of Jody Weiss to an extent had no desire for accountability whatsoever. And you're not going to get, for the most part, you're not going to get anyone within the department that will push accountabilities and reforms 
through because then the people are going to break against them and you're going to get the same articles we got today that we've discussed so far um, against them. That is just a reality. I don't know where Lightfoot goes. I don't know who she could possibly bring. I don't know who would apply to work under her or Rom or Daly. That was, has been always been a problem. And it's not any better now. Okay, so we're going to move on to our second segment. This is an interview with Albert Fox Khan. He is a the founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. I believe it's out of NYU Law School, but it's based in New York. And basically, they look at and challenge and confront the methods and tactics of surveillance of the surveillance state in New York. Um, challenge and examine all the surveillance technologies. And there are many, many, many that are used by the New York Police Department. It's really a fascinating conversation. I will be back with you after that. Okay, so tell our audience who's not familiar, what is the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, which we're gonna to refer to as STOP, and why is there a need for STOP's work? So we're a New York-based civil rights and privacy group that's really just trying to push back on the growth of this massive surveillance state at the state and local level. You know, a lot of people know that, you know, for 20 years since 9-11, we saw this explosion in federal surveillance powers. You know, some of it aimed overseas, some of it aimed here at the U.S., but what oftentimes it's overlooked is that we've had at the same moment this huge increase in state and local government surveillance. So we see local police departments using everything from drones to facial recognition, new forms of artificial intelligence, things that are straight out of episodes of Black Mirror, like the robotic dog that the NYPD started marching through public housing projects here in New York. And what STOP tries to do is really combat this locally, use a, a sort of a, a community-centered model, and to try to transform New York from one of the worst offenders to hopefully a model uh, of just civil rights protection for uh, cities around the world. So to understand more about Stop's perspective, um, because the abolition um, abolition theory and, and perspective, I guess is the best way to say it, has gained a lot of mm -hmm. um, momentum over the last few years. So is, is Stop a abolition? Are they promoting abolition when it comes to these technologies or is this use but regulate? Or so is there somewhere in the middle? So we're a surveillance abolition group. So we our focus is banning this technology completely. Now, as sometimes that means that incrementally you take steps to push back and push back and push back until you can ban it completely. But our goal, our overriding goal with all of this technology, whether it's facial recognition, whether it's drones, whether it's other uses of artificial intelligence, is to outlaw this stuff. 100%. Because we know that where you have, you know, warrant requirements, where you have other sort of checks, that the discretion you're leaving police, that discretion is systematically weaponized against BIPOC communities. That's just the way it always has been. And, and so we don't think that these technologies can be uh, effectively regulated, but sometimes those regulations are helpful stepping stones to complete abolition. I heard you use an acronym, but in case my audience doesn't know, can you define BIPOC? 
black indigenous people of color this is an overarching term that we tend to use uh, in, in discussing the communities that are most often systematically targeted by police but of course it's not completely inclusive we know that police have targeted the lgbtqi community uh systematically over years undocumented communities are often targeted and, and so part of why you know i wanted to address that early in this conversation is we know these technologies don't impact all of us equally. We know that these technologies replicate the same sorts of, you know, discrimination, bias, violence that has, you know, defined American policing for as long as we've had police in America. So I always talk a term that I try to tell people to think about, especially when it comes to surveillance, but any kind of use of force, weaponry, it's called function creep. Yep. And it, to me, it is, we need it for this, just this one circumstance. It never stays there. So no. can these surveillance, can these technologies, can the police departments be given these technologies and us expect them not to be function creep and use them in ways societies, communities don't want them to be used? I, I mean, this is the pattern we see every single time. And I want to call out the work of my amazing uh, colleague and collaborator, Evan Selinger. He's a professor at RIT, and he's talked a lot about what he calls the non-fallacious slippery slope. Because oftentimes we hear about slippery slope arguments as this thing that's like, oh, it's a red herring. People are just going to say that, that uh, you know, if you take this small step, that'll lead you to this bigger outcome. And oftentimes we look down on that argument as sort of not being intellectually honest, but with surveillance, it's been proven true over and over again. And part of the reason why is that the cost of the surveillance is all upfront. When you're buying the hardware, that's when you're paying you know, billions of dollars to install the system. And you'll, buy, you'll spend that money in the name of having a capability for whatever is most politically relevant at the moment. So we heard a lot in the 80s about and, and 90s about having this surveillance to combat drugs. Then we heard a lot post 9-11 about using it to combat terrorism. And then the reality is that it just becomes a tool for anything that the police want to use it for. In New York, we've seen camera systems that were installed to combat terrorism used to monitor homelessness, to track where unhoused New Yorkers were block by block and to create a heat map of, of where they were located throughout the city. That's not a threat to national security. That's just another example of this tool being weaponized by police, by government for whatever purpose they want. Okay, so I perused your amazing website, and I've seen some of the technologies that you all are fighting uh, to have the NYPD stop using, and I want to go over them. I want to go over a few of them. A couple of mm -hmm. them um, I didn't know they had, so I'm going to start off with what I consider simple because I know we have these issues in Chicago with stingrays. What is a stingray, and how do they use it? So stingray is a brand name for what's called an ISMI catcher. In uh, simply put, it's a fake cell tower created by the police. And what they can do with this is track the location of you know, one phone, 
dozens of phones, even thousands of phones nearby. And so this became really controversial because it was used in secrecy for years by local police departments. It was so secret that they had contracts with the uh, manufacturers that said that they would that they were not allowed to tell the courts that this is why they were arresting people. And just think about it. Like this is inviting police to lie under oath, to fabricate evidence, to hide the fact that they're using this. And that's in the contract. And, and so with stingrays, you know, we, we've seen lots of examples of them being used, but some of the most chilling uh, possibilities are you set up a stingray in the center of a protest, or you set it out, set it up at a mosque for Friday prayer. And very quickly, you can identify everyone who's bringing a phone to that location. And, you know, increasingly with the efforts to repeal Roe v. Wade, we, we see risk that these same tools will be used to target reproductive health care access, that you could use a stingray outside of a you know, Planned Parenthood clinic to track anyone who's going inside. That's why I should scare the hell out of you. In Chicago, they put them in the back of not the 911 center's cars and follow protests. So those blacked out SUVs behind the protests is actually the back has a stingray in it. Um, Anonymous hacked the feed between the fusion center and that the police on the scene with the stingray. And it's fascinating. You can listen to it online. Um, it's fascinating. What is a geofence and how are they using that? So a geofence is anytime you're basically drawing a, a, an area on a map. And so look at Google maps and you can just, you know, draw a rectangle, draw a circle, draw any shape you want. And when you're doing that, you're saying, I'm fencing off this area. And with a geofence warrant, it's this new type of court order where police will go to a company like Google and they'll say, we don't know whose phone we want information about. We don't know whose account we're trying to locate. So instead, give us every person who had a device within this geofence, within this shape on the map, within this time. And what's so alarming is that, again, you're talking about a tool that not just can track one person, but can track tens of thousands of people. It could track an entire neighborhood. And we've seen these sweeping court orders that are granting you know, police access to huge numbers of uh, individuals' uh, accounts. And so, you know, we're uh, we actually worked with lawmakers to create the first ban in the country that would outlaw geofence warrants completely. Um, that bill is pending in Albany as we speak. We're hoping that New York will become the first to adopt this legislation later this year. And we think it's an urgent safeguard because, you know, these orders are so broad. They're so sweeping, they're so ripe for abuse that they are unconstitutional on their face. They are, again, a way to target massive numbers of people just for exercising their constitutional rights. And it's something where the courts have been asleep at the switch and we can't allow it to go unchecked and, you know, for years more until they're finally struck down. So, um, okay, so X-ray bans. This one I did not know existed. I mean, they showed it in the Denzel Washington after 9-11 movie, right? <laughs> they were using microwave or something at that point. So this one scared the crap out of me. 
Yeah, so these were a technology that was developed originally to detect uh, improvised explosive devices in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. It uses either x-rays or more often millimeter wave uh, detection, which is you know a different part of the electromagnetic um, frequency, uh, um, but it basically is a way to look through objects. And, and you know, this is something where, again, it's incredibly invasive. It's incredibly creepy. It seems like something out of a bad movie. And it was used for years before we even had any uh, information that they're being deployed. We still don't know where they're being used. And part of why that's concerning is the real health concerns about what repeated exposure to these sorts of uh, vans would, would mean. We don't know if there are guidelines around using them near schools, using them near hospitals. And, you know, it just gets back to the fact that, you know, it's the Wild West out here. We don't have, we basically have no oversight uh, on the way these systems are being deployed. And we've just left it to the police to write the rules themselves. Yeah, it's very scary. It's like it's like the police are basically saying, I'm going to do it and I'll apologize later. Right. And can you imagine if we allowed any other government agency to act this way, to write their own rules, to basically act with impunity and to just, you know, you know, maybe in a best case scenario, tell us what they did after the fact? It, we wouldn't accept it if you know the fire department was deciding what buildings could burn to the ground. We wouldn't accept it if, if you know the Department of Health was you know unilaterally shutting down hospitals. We expect in a democracy that you know the public, that lawmakers, that elected officials, they get to control how our communities are governed. Except when it comes to police and particularly police surveillance, somehow all of that just disappears. Yeah. It certainly does, and it's this. Um, it's a fear. It's fear driven, right? In my mm -hmm. opinion, it's all fear driven. It's yeah. fear driven, and the belief by the majority of public, especially white public, that it won't be used against them or their family or friends because they're not. They've been able to um, dehumanize and otherize. I'm not sure how to phrase that right. Whoever that's going to be used upon, and it isn't them. Yeah, and, and the, the most frustrating thing is, and I always emphasize this when I'm talking about the surveillance tech, it doesn't actually work. You know, it doesn't, when you look at the ways to prevent crime, the ways to promote safety, it's not having these massive surveillance networks. It's not invading every precinct of our lives. It's, you know, investing in social safety nets. It's providing financial support to people in need. It's having the things that, you know, create a resilient society. It's not having this constant effort to, you know, turn every, you know, officer on the beat into, you know, some modern day RoboCop. Yeah. And, like one of the great hypocrisies about America is if you look at conservatives, they will say, we need to restrict the power of government. We need to, you know, rein them in. And I had this with one of my board members. I challenged them on the phone once. I'm like, why is it the only part of government you don't want to rein in are the police? Mm -hmm. It's the criminal justice system. You'll let them do anything they want. More money, always. New technologies, always. But damn, every other part of government's got to be reined in. I mean, I will say there are, we do see, you know, some folks who are more libertarian on the right who uh, do take a more consistent stance, but you're right that, you know, when it comes to police, when it comes to the military, there, there, there's this complete double standard where there's this willingness to 
give them as much money, as much power as possible, and to really abdicate that that commitment to individual liberty. Okay, can you quickly, you had on your site um, some information about the POST Act, mm-hmm. and I, I can you tell us a little about that? Because I want to go over a couple of what you all say is the five biggest lies the NYPD told related to them, because it's, it's pretty... Um, pretty ridiculous when you look at those. Yeah. So the post act was the first surveillance bill that was passed in New York post nine 11. It took a multiple year campaign by over a hundred, you know, groups, everyone from civil rights uh, groups to uh, ultra local community based groups. Uh, It included, you know, abolitionist orgs and reformist orgs, the, really a broad spectrum of New York organizations coming together to say, at a bare minimum, you have to tell us what tools you're using, what surveillance tech you're buying, and to give us the information to have a debate. Now, the NYPD fought this tooth and nail. It, it took, you know, nearly three years to, to get it through. And when it did go through, you know, the NYPD was forced to, you know, start pulling back the curtain. And predictably, they tried to hide as much as they could. Now, the good thing is we still did get a lot of important information as a result of the Post Act. So, for example, we got, you know, a quarter billion dollars in NYPD contracts that had been hidden prior to the post act. So to, I think it's uh, $257 million and uh, everything from you know, fiber optic networks to, to camera systems. But we also see that the NYPD, it, it continues to put out these boilerplate statements that just hide uh, as much as they can and sometimes just blatantly lie uh, about what the, the technology they have can do. Let's go over some of these. And I'm trying not to laugh because, and not at what you guys have posted, but at the at the just ridiculousness of the statements. Mm-hmm. And when people say, well, where did where did Trumpianism come from when you can just boldfacedly lie? Well, a lot of times you could look at police departments and the justice system and how they just have been lying for decades. Okay. But somehow facial art facial recognition is not artificial intelligence. Yeah, this was one of the more perplexing things. And like the NYPD has been as secretive as they could be about facial recognition for years. You know, they lied in the past about what vendors are using. They've tried to hide the extent to which they're using it. But in this report, you know, they were sub- they came out with this uh, report on, you know, dozens of technologies. One of them is facial recognition. And again, it's just boilerplate garbage trying to hide the truth and one of the things they said is facial recognition doesn't use artificial intelligence and it's just like we know that's false we know that the technology is like the leading global example of artificial intelligence and then on top of that the nypd had even claimed they had even acknowledged that this was an artificial intelligence program in other reports to other city agencies. So it was just like, to me, this just spoke to not just how opaque they were, but how sloppy they were in the lies that they put out there. All right. The more you lie, right. You tell a lie and you have to tell five more to keep that lie. And you have to tell 20 more to keep those five that keeps that one. Um, it's only a matter of time. Okay, the the fingerprint scanning device is not used for immigration enforcement. 
Yeah, this is one of the things that's been really frustrating. New York claims to be a sanctuary city. We've claimed that for you know almost 20 years, and yet we continue to provide information to ICE, information that's used to target and deport undocumented New Yorkers. So one thing that's been a, a real point of concern for years is that the NYPD doesn't have its own fi- a fingerprint system. It runs its fingerprints through the state police database, which runs it, its uh, matches through the federal system, which then is available to ICE. So we know that in a matter of seconds, you know, when someone is fingerprinted by the NYPD, that that information is potentially available to ICE, and yet the NYPD continues to deny that reality. And so again, it's just, you know, if they're willing to lie about things that are this well documented, the question is, what else are they hiding that we haven't yet been able to call them out on? Yeah, the level at which these agencies will lie never seems to surprise me. However, I was recently surprised. We're working with organizations here in DC going after gang affiliation data in Maryland, Mm -hmm. in the Metropolitan Police Department, ATS, DEA, in something called HIDA, the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Mm -hmm. Area, whatever this thing is, because it's still on, whether it's a multi-jurisdiction task force or a federal agency. It's a fusion center created, yeah. Right. So we, we FOIA'd all of them for gang affiliation data. Haida said, you can't FOIA us. We don't have any data. We don't have any gang affiliation data or database. And we're an office of the National Drug Control Policy in the White House. So we, we FOIA'd the Office of the National Drug Control Policy and all these Maryland and Haida all at the same time. The Office of the National Drug Control Policy said, we have no such data. And a one paragraph, really ridiculously poorly written thing. I'm like, wow, that's, we're going to be suing you easily. But we get from the Maryland State Police, we put data in these three databases. One is HIDA's. Here's the MOU we signed with HIDA. Huh? <laughs> Wait a minute. HIDA told us in a one-paragraph thing they don't have any data. Um, then the Maryland uh, Baltimore Police Department came back and said, we put data in into HIDA's database, and that's federal, and we can tell you nothing about it. Yep. So we're going to end up, because they get money from Baltimore, I mean, from Maryland, we're going to FOIA HIDA under Maryland's FOIA law and then sue them all in the same case. Yeah. So they get, and I think what they're doing, HIDA saying, no, we, we oversee a database that is actually GangsNet that's run by ATF. Hmm. We're the facilitator for it on the local level, but we don't actually maintain the data and we don't store it in our servers. So we don't have anything to give you. Oh, God. I mean, this is the sort of thing they do to, like, just try to circumvent, uh, you know, public record law. They'll they'll play this sort of game where it's like everyone claims not to have access to the data, not to control the data. And one thing we see that um, a lot of police departments do is they'll try to come up with arrangements so that they can uh, prevent um, defense counsel from getting information from their vendors by saying, oh, this algorithm, it's purely under the vendor's control. Oh, this database, it's purely the vendors. So you don't have a right to go and, and get that information when you know, you're charged with a crime. And it, it really creates this, you know, this, it, I, I mean, you use words like Orwellian and Kafkaesque, but it really goes beyond a lot of those sort of really disturbing uh, portraits of authoritarianism. 
Right. And this is what we know about, right? There's got to be yep. eight layers lower. What's going actually going on in the fusion center? What technology? Because like, I think part of the NYPD is like, well, we don't, we don't have access to that technology. The guy next to us in the fusion center does. And then he runs the, the search for us. And then we look at the screen, but we don't, we don't actually maintain the data. Yeah. And we don't use the technology. Yeah. It's all very scary. Um, one last technology that I, um, that I got from your site. What are reverse location warrants? So reverse location warrants are, it, it's another word for the geofence warrants okay. that we were talking about before. But what's interesting is there are other types of reverse warrants. So, you know, with a geofence warrant, you're going and saying, give us the information on everyone in this area and we'll sort of reverse engineer it from there. But we also see keyword warrants. These are warrants where you'll go to Google and say, give us everyone who Googled this address or Googled this term. And you'll use that to, again, completely reverse the logic of warrants. Warrants are supposed to be something individualized where we say, hey, I have reason to suspect Albert. I'm going to get a warrant for Albert's information and I can then further that investigation. But with these sorts of warrants, it's just this brazen effort to turn everyone's search history into a, yet another policing tool. And in a way that, you know, to me, just not only is it chilling and ripe for abuse, it really just upends the most minimal protections we're supposed to have under the constitution. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's, I went through your site and I, I knew about a fair amount of the surveillance, but it just gets scarier and I'm really scared about what we don't know. Okay, so last question. Is there a technology we haven't discussed today? And if there is, which one scares you the most? Oh, I always say that the technology that scares me the most is the one I haven't heard about, the one that I don't know about, the one that they've kept so secretive that we don't even have rumors that it exists. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to be some social media monitoring tool or some new artificial intelligence tool to figure out who's going to commit a crime in the future. Of course, it can't do anything of the sort. I, I really think that it's always the next tool that's being used and yet we haven't figured it out. That's the one that keeps me up at night. Yeah, I think people also need to understand fundamentally, and this has been shown in Chicago over the last year with some reports that have come out, police departments are really poorly managed and they function internally very, very, very poorly. And so the idea that you think they could have really strong structured oversight of what goes on internally. In my view right now in America, that's virtually impossible. And, and they keep falling for the same scams. You know, a lot of these vendors, it's just, it's all smoke and mirrors. Like imagine someone comes to you and they say, oh, I have a crystal ball and I'll predict the future and I'll tell you what's going to happen before it does you'd laugh them out of the room. But if they say, well, I have an algorithm that can do the exact same thing. And there's no third-party verification. There's no independent review. There's no evidence that actually does it. You just have a slide deck and a sales pitch and you have police departments spending millions on this tech and people getting arrested because of it. And it's all based off of, you know, Theranos style promises. Like to me, that is, is just like a sign that they, they really are completely out of control. One of the first um, predictive policing 
system, sort of, was actually uh, funded by the Justice Department through a grant in Chicago, and it was in the Chicago Police Department. And they promoted, they quadruple promoted a patrol officer to run that unit. He had helped launch Open Table. He was a techie. And they quadruple promoted him and gave him a staff. And he would produce things like on a really warm Saturday night in the middle of summer, this eight block area, there will be a murder in this eight block area of the poorest, most um, uh, black community with, that's incredibly poor, has a lot of violence. And even the cops and their blogs are like, oh, here comes the crystal ball unit. This is what they predicted this weekend. There's going to be a shooting in this neighborhood. It's 90 out at night. Right. It's the middle of the yeah. summer. It's on a Saturday night. Yes, there's going to be a shooting. We didn't need the crystal ball to do it. And they got rid of the department. Now it's back. And they've added all kinds of new technologies to Chicago. Stingrays were discovered through lawsuits. Uh, but I can only imagine. And I'm I'm most scared about this. Not by I, I shouldn't say that. I'm most scared, I guess, in two ways. The real expert use of this, if and when that actually occurs and the complete incompetent use of this. Yeah. where they're falling on their feet, tripping over themselves and just scooping people up for no reason. Yeah, the way I always describe it is this tech is biased, it's broken, and when it does work, it undermines democracy. So it's like I, either way, whether they're using it incompetently or whether they actually manage to get it to work one of these days, it's a harm to all of us. Yeah, and as long as this public continues to remain, to be scared about everything, even when you live in New York City, that um, is quite different than 1990, let's say. Yes. <laughs> 2,000 murders to 400 murders. You think you'd feel safer. <sighs> well, uh, that that is a longer conversation. It is. Right but, right. but people just don't have any perspective. It's so violent. Really? There were 2,000 murders in New York in 1990. In Chicago, there were 1,000. Um, mm -hmm. So anyways, I'm going to rant about that all the time. All right. Uh, Albert Foxconn, thank you so much for jumping on. I want to say I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Really a pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Albert Foxconn for jumping on the pod today. It was a really fascinating conversation. The Chicago Justice Project is part of our CJP Nation, which is our where our volunteers and interns come together to work on crowdsourced research projects, outreach, social media advocacy, some fundraising if they want to get involved in that for us. Well, we are starting a new group based on this conversation with Albert, and we're going to be starting a new group that's going to be looking at surveillance technologies within the Chicago Police Department. The Office of Emergency Management and Communications, OEMC, handles a lot of those digital technologies, and we may also look at the Cook County Sheriff's Office. So if you're interested in getting involved, reach out to, um, you can go to cjpnation.org and uh, fill out a form and let us know you're interested if you want to be part of that. You can also go to CJP, uh, the ChicagoJustice.org. We have a form filler contact form. You can let us know through that too. It's imperative upon a democracy for the people to understand the capabilities of our police departments, anything really involved in a security state, especially because a concept I use, I bring up in our conversation with Albert it's all about, it is all about, it is all about function creep. Police departments are very good at saying, we need this technology for this specific purpose and we'll only use it then. That never happens. Never in a hundred years 
of policing and 120 years of policing in the US, I think, right, late 1800s, early 1900s, never have police departments just used that technology for that sole purpose. Never, ever. It just doesn't happen. There's always the, the incentives are built into policing, both with the media hounding them all the time, all the fires they got to put out of the, the politics of getting promotions in departments, the politics of getting the superintendent job, the politics involved in keeping that job, the politics of dealing with the city council and state reps and all of that. You are always going to be have incentives to use that technology in other ways, the surveillance technologies in other ways. It is almost 100% assured you're going to get that. And the, the police departments in this country have done nothing to gain that should uh, have in our minds, put something in our minds to say, you know what, we really trust the Chicago Police Department to you know, use any and all surveillance technologies they can get in the utmost, more ethical, responsible manner. We said in the, la in the first segment, the department's broke. How the hell would we know they were even doing that? And honestly, their management can't tell that if the people within their department are using the technologies that way. That's how broken the oversight within that department is, the management within the department. So as, um, as Albert is doing in New York, we hope to start doing a little bit through our CJP Nation group that is gonna start um, looking into these surveillance capabilities across the board at the police department, both in social media, but in these technologies like the vans and other technology that are really, really um, should scare us, should scare us all. Okay, thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. Any ideas about who you'd want me to interview on the podcast or topics covered? Um, we're going to be talking about domestic violence coming up. We're also talking up um, to a national leader in the criminology and criminal justice world. Um, that is also coming up in the next few weeks. We're gonna be looking at the Fox report related to the Jesse Smollett case. We're gonna be looking at um, the community council set up by the mayor. They announced their first, uh, the executive director. Surprise, surprise, it's a white guy. It's shocking um, that the mayor would do that. I know um, the executive director. He's a good guy for the most part, um, but I'm kind of shocked that she picked a white guy to lead that group. Um, so anyways, that is what's coming up on the pod. I'm happy to hear your comments or suggestions, recommendations for topics covered or people you want discussed. Thanks, and I'll see you in a week. I'll see you next Wednesday. Uh -huh.